Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 84 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon. It's August 1st. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. And I'm Amy. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> Amy, Amy, we, we, have, we have a guest. This is better already. This Who's is, our guest? I was going to say, this is like, we've already, you know, people are like, wait, I have to listen to this episode. Maybe even my wife will listen to this episode. No, no one's no. going to listen to our parts of the episode. They're going to set it on an Amy-only setting on iTunes. Well, so we're very lucky and fortunate to have with us today Amy Jeffress, who is a partner at Arnold Porter in Arnold and Porter in DC, um, and who, unlike us, actually has real legitimate experience Loads on the topics we're talking about Loads on this podcast. It. Amy um, has served as counselor to the Attorney General, advising the Attorney General and senior DOJ leadership, interfacing with the White House and National Security Council, the intelligence community um, for what thirteen years. Amy was a prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, where she ran the National Security Section. Um, Amy, like me, went to Yale Law School. Amy, unlike me, went to a podunk college in the northwestern corner of Massachusetts (laughs) that we will not discuss and name on this episode, other than to say, (laughs) William sucks. Um, No, 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 no. (laughs) But other than than awkward choices in college, Amy is is a fantastic professional and friend of ours, and it's a real treat to have her here. Welcome. Thank you. Honored to be here. It's really fun to have you on the show. So tell us everything we've gotten wrong. Uh, you, you made a huge mistake in uh, referring to Williams as uh, as, po- as a podunk, and not referring to Amherst as a podunk school in the northwest in the northwest corner of Massachusetts. But well, Amherst is in, not, in fact, in the northwest corner of Massachusetts. More or less, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway. Um, wait, wait, we're already going to find out they're geography. Actually, I'm going I'm to already try to bridge the gap here. They are both excellent colleges. Uh, that see on this ep- on this show we model <laughs> civil agreement amongst people who disagree about important policy matters like Amherst versus Williams the biggest <laughs> little game in America baby so um, so Amy is here uh, because your son is looking at colleges yes that's very cool but since since you know Austin in August is just a tourist location par excellence we thought it would be fun to have you on the show and you know talk to you about. National security law. It's really great to have you here. Your expertise runs so deep. And in a minute, I want to kind of run through some of your life story to highlight the the different ways your career is intersected with national security issues. Let me quickly give a run of the show. So the first thing we will do is that um, sort of tell us your national security law life. Uh, Amy, and then we'll uh, then we'll note uh, the cyber provisions. Long promised the cyber provisions in the National Defense Authorization Act, which, as we speak, is on its way to the president's desk. And uh, after that, we will uh, pivot over to, of course, a little Doe v. Mattis update. Oh gosh, you got to have some Doe v. Mattis. You really don't. I, mean, I just want to say, like, I really do think this podcast could live without Doe versus Mattis. Well, and I think we're getting closer to the day when we're going to have to. Prove that. Yeah. <laughs> you'll, you watch. You'll see. And then, uh, of course, we'll visit over in Trumplandia, where there's a lot to talk about. It's, we, been, it's been another fun week in Trumplandia. It, it always is. We have a number of things we're going to zoom through. Uh, Steve, will we have any visitation to military commission land? I don't, you know, unless something happens in the next hour, I think that we might actually say nothing about the military commissions this week, which is unusual for us. But, hey... It happens. Yeah. All right. Um, the, the military commissions were quiet at the non-waiver trading deadline. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just like the nationals. 
until that, the Nationals were quiet at the trade until, deadline, and then they and then and then they, they busted out a can of whoop, you know what, on the Mets last I night. had no idea what had happened, and then one of our listeners uh, made sure we knew about the 20, so I actually twenty five to four. I get down. I get score updates on my phone, right? So so here I am watching. First, it's like seven nothing in the first inning, and then it's it's nineteen nothing after five innings. Which, by the way, only the second time in all of Major League history a team has been up nineteen nothing after five innings. The first time was in eighteen seventy six. Ouch. Um, Biggest loss by the Mets in franchise history. and That's saying something. That is saying something. And Jose Reyes got to pitch. That was the best part of the whole deal. And he got shelled. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're throwing 48-mile-an-hour curveballs, Bobby, (laughs) you could hit a 48-mile-an-hour curveball. Absolutely. I think maybe I could. Should we go outside? I could probably throw a 48-mile-an-hour curveball. You know what? Actually, that'd be a lot of fun. (laughs) So just some other things we might go through. I think we should say something about 3D guns. We've got some interesting things happening. Yeah, because... There's there's an occasion here to, to wait 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 but apparently there's like a global gag order so maybe we can't yeah well I haven't been served so yeah, I'm gonna right. go ahead and talk about it. Uh, this is an excuse of course to talk about the Arms Export Control Act and totally. ITAR and because the US of course that's what we live to talk about the Arms Export Control Act well it gives us a chance to do more obscure acronyms uh, and then quality uh, I think I think we owe our audience a little bit of Space Force. And it must be said that way because there's an exclamation mark at the end. Space Force. So, so you say it like Space Force. I say it like Space Balls. Space Balls. Space Balls is good. But Space Force to me, I, I picture the Lego guy from Lego movie, the, the astronaut who wants to build a spaceship. Instead of saying spaceship, it's Space Force. There's a small part of me that actually is embarrassed that these are the things we talk about on our podcast. No, <laughs> there's, there's no part of me that's embarrassed. No, I'm, I'm all, I'm, I mean, I'm more generally embarrassed by the podcast. But like, right. insofar, as, insofar as the specific things we were left to talk about because of the current world we live in, that we actually are going to talk about the Space Force. Space Force is a nice, clean, uh, you know, family-friendly national security law topic <laughs> compared to half the things we deal with. Speaking right. of family-friendly, frivolity. Yep. Frivolity. Okay, so what shall we talk about? There's a couple of things we want to talk about. When we get to the finale, we're gonna we're gonna have some words about 1990s top pop hits, best worst, maybe <laughs> maybe some guilt, guilty uh, guilty beloved songs, things you don't really want to admit you like listening to. And uh, I, I have no doubt had it right. Don't speak. Don't speak. Just don't, don't speak. You know just what I'm thinking? Um, and we should also give Amy and her son some dinner recommendations for tonight in Austin. Mm. That would be great. Is that useful? Yes. All right. So so but, we but need to beyond, know you better. Beyond so and besides Komori Tatsuya. Uh, that, that's not a bad one if yeah. you want to go Japanese. But we need to Japanese know her better. Twist of we need to know her better. Ah. So we need to get into your life story a little bit. So uh, when was what was the first job you had, Amy, that led you into the realm of national security? Well, my first job out of my clerkship was at the general counsel's office in the Department of Defense. And I didn't go there for national security work. I went there because I knew Jamie Gorelick growing up, and she became the general counsel in the early days of the Clinton administration. And so I went there to work for her. And we didn't last long because she quickly became the deputy attorney general, as you probably know, um, within a year. And then I moved to justice, and then I was at justice for 20 years. I had studied international law in law school, and I always found it interesting, and I had even before law school taken the foreign service exam, so I was interested in that area, but national security law was not the thing that it is now yeah. back then, as as I remember well that you guys might not remember, but um, national security law really 
obviously took off after 9-11 when the government completely changed its structure and created the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, uh, you know, just increased dramatically its attention to national security and all of the agencies increased staffing and the ODNI was created. And so there were many, many, many more jobs in that field than there were you know, in 1992 when I graduated from law school. So my first real national security job was serving as the chief of the national security section in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that was a section that was created after 9-11, after the National Security Division was created at Justice. A number of the larger offices created national security sections, and D.C. was one of the first. So obviously uh, you're going to have some counterintelligence cases. You're going to have... the occasional terrorism-related case. What, what can you give us a sketch of the type of cases that would come across your desk and the roles you would play? Right. We had in D.C. a default venue for all of the overseas terrorism cases, so there were a lot more terrorism cases than you might think. Um, D.C. and New York had the vast majority of those, New York for sort of historical reasons, um, and the al-Qaeda focus, um, and D.C. because of this venue provision. So uh, we had a lot of those. The biggest case probably that I handled uh, when I was in that section was the uh, overseeing the anthrax investigation mm. and uh, and so that was of course the attacks and the mailings that took place um, after 9/11 that panicked the country really yeah. and uh, and so that was a fascinating investigation and then I also uh, oversaw the investigation and prosecution of all of the um, export related uh, offenses and sanctions offenses and so you know you were talking earlier about the we love um, ACA and uh, and so that that has actually informed some of my practice now at Arnold Porter um, but there were a fair amount of those as well and then there were some leak cases and uh, espionage cases so it was a really interesting mix do you ever have to battle with your uh, neighbors across the way in the Eastern District of Virginia for who is going to get a particular case where it, they, the defendant could be brought in here versus brought in there? We did. We battled more with New York, but <laughs> uh, we we all would go to Maine Justice right when a case uh, arose and and fight that battle. And you see Chuck Rosenberg in the hall, and you're like <laughs> racing to like you hit all the buttons in his elevator, and then you run to the stairs. That those sort of thing. those were in my day at least friendly rivalries, <laughs> and sometimes we won, sometimes we lost, and that's still the way they play out. But uh, you, of course, the office that uh, gets there first is generally the office that gets the case. So. And you, I actually forgot to mention in introducing you, my, my favorite current line on your resume, which is FISA Amica Curiae. Right. Um, how, I mean, how, I know you can't talk all about that experience, but, but what, what has surprised you about that experience? And, and on balance, do you think that the you know, special advocate light provisions of the USA Freedom Act have generally been a good thing? I do think that they have been a good development, and I um, have been encouraging the court to use it more. Um, There were a few appointments right after the panel was appointed, and mine was public uh, eventually when they um, declassified the uh, opinion that I had uh, written a brief for, and then eventually declassified uh, my brief as well. with certain redactions. Um, so that appointment was public. Um, there was a bit of a lull. There have been more recent appointments, um, but there was about a year when there weren't any. So uh, I think that the court should use it more. I think it can add to the credibility of the process. And I think eventually it really will play a role in just re- reinforcing public conf- uh, confidence and the confidence of Congress in how it's uh how FISA operates. So, I mean, it, it strikes me, I don't think anyone who's listening to this podcast will be surprised to hear me say this, that that public confidence in the FISA court is wildly miscalibrated, right? That that the, the matters in which there actually is no real opportunity for an amicus 
to participate, the sort of classic Title I warrant applications, is where I think there's the least concern about public confidence, but where there's probably the most actual concern in public confidence today, thanks to our friend Carter Page. It's a very <laughs> fair point. And I wish that the court had thought to appoint an amicus for that particular FISA. And now that I have seen the redacted version that has been uh, made public, I can understand why the court perhaps didn't think it was necessary to do that. But Because well, it was open and shut? <laughs> um, yeah, we should we should actually underscore this because, of course, anyone who's listened to us talk about it knows that we think that was a no-brainer yep. that probable cause was shown. And, all, and, and the whole issue supposedly surrounding this is a giant manufactured thing. Um, you've had actual experience working on these things in, in in many contexts. What is that your assessment as well? It is. I mean, wholly apart from what was redacted out of it, um, and uh, I think just on the face of it, the historical connections, and then the uh, um, what had happened in the case in New York several years ago, and then the more recent information. Um, obviously, the the steel dossier, which is not actually a dossier, but is called that, uh, has gotten a lot of attention. But there was a lot more information in that uh, FISA, even in the uh, redacted versions that's been made public, that supported the um, the application. So I, I don't yeah. think that there's re- really any reason to criticize it. So this, this is a good segue into something you've currently got on your uh, client list. You have a client that in, in a way involves you in some of the larger what we always refer to as the Trumplandia stories. Uh, tell us about that representation. Right. You're talking about Lisa Page, yes. who uh, was one of the uh, text messengers, uh, if you will. <laughs> yeah. um, so I started assisting her when those messages were discovered by the Inspector General's office, and uh, and she became a subject of the investigation as to whether those uh, opinions reflected in the messages had influenced any of her actions uh, in the course of handling the Clinton email investigation. And so uh, she cooperated fully, was interviewed multiple times, and I assisted her through that process. And the IG report came out and found that, in fact, uh, her view did not affect the uh, actions that she took. And uh, um, it was uh, the whole process, though, of having those text messages made public, which the IG did not do, but they ultimately did leak, has has been obviously very difficult and has had lots of consequences. And she recently had to go uh, testify before committees of Congress. And so it's uh, it's been quite an ordeal. But it's also been a great opportunity to represent someone um, whom I had some... uh, very tangential association with in government, but who is a career government lawyer who I think should not have been targeted in the way she has been. Our students often ask, you know, in private practice, if I go to a firm, can I still do any national security related things? And in, there are a lot of answers to that. And you've, you've mentioned some of the, the export control stuff, but then there's the the issues that government employees and former government employees uh, can have. And, and that is definitely something where private lawyers absolutely do often get involved. Um, well, we should probably get to our, our show's uh, sort of recurring topics, but before we do that, we you know we've kind of jumped over this big important chunk of your of your Justice Department experience. Any other highlights or, or key moments in national security law that you, you might want to share with the audience? The audience, which by the way is now over ten thousand. Congratulations, as guys! As measured by downloads, at least one time. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you make a lot more out of these numbers than I, I do. do. I'm going to have it tattooed on. Your leg. On my leg. <laughs> yeah. I don't want a tattoo. Um, 
Yeah, there are lots of inappropriate comments I could make right now about <laughs> tattooing numbers on. I'm going to change the subject Please. back to something. The only see what happens when we have a responsible person on the podcast. It, it's, it's, it, we should make this a recurring gig. You really just got to stay in town and help us out. I, I'd be happy to do that. It's nice here. So the only really? uh, job that it is, it's hot, but I mean, it's nice. Outside. I was going nice. to say, have you been it's outside? Nice. <laughs> the only job we didn't really talk about was uh, my job as the attaché in London, which was for me a highlight. It was a great experience, fun to live in London, and then also an interesting job where I was working on mutual legal assistance and extradition issues, and some of those come up on your show, so to the extent that those issues are relevant, I thought I'd mention it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I, I'm jealous of that particular posting. Indeed. That sounds pretty fabulous. All right. London, London we... is not this hot. No, 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 that's true. But on the other hand, this place is sunnier and warmer in January, so it's all trade-offs, I guess. Touche. Well, tell you what, London in the summer, Austin in the winter. Right. Perfect. I'm in. Let's do it. Any of our uh, British listeners uh, who care to hook us up yeah, in some fashion on, with that, hello. we're right here. We're waiting to hear from you. Come on. Okay, uh, we promised some NDAA discussion for weeks and weeks. So excited. Now we're going to deliver part of that. We're not going to do everything. Like, for example, we're not going to talk about the CFIUS, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, revisions, which uh, sort of originates. Uh, Senator Cornyn has had this project to expand and reform the CFIUS process, and it's complicated and important, and I think it's a substantial achievement that that's in there, and it was a bipartisan thing, as the NDAA uh, you know, usually is. So we'll talk about that on a future episode when we're more prepared to do it right. Uh, I think what we'll mainly talk about right now is just the cyber provisions, since I, I'm up to speed on it because I've been writing about it for Lawfare. Uh, there are a bunch of cyber provisions in the NDAA. I want to highlight things that really should be of interest to the national security law nerds like us <laughs> uh, on military operations in cyberspace. And there's basically three clusters of things you need to be aware of in this respect. One is uh, there's some renumbering in the US code that annoys me. The same thing happened um, not that long ago with the covert action oversight statutes, which unless you're accustomed to citing to the sections of the National Security Act, which some people are, if you were instead accustomed to citing to uh, U.S. code, they moved them around, and it was nice housekeeping, but then you had to relearn what the, the same numbers thing, The same were. thing happened to the Insurrection Act. All of Title 50 just got, you know. Yep. And, and and my favorite and your favorite, the Alien Enemy Act of 1798. They got moved around? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, a lot has changed in 1798. Well, so we had the same thing has now happened by, not because the folks who curate the U.S. code, but this time Congress has decided to move some things around. And what they were moving around were a, uh, a set of sections, not all the sections, but most of the sections that together collectively comprise what is, I would argue, the, the parallel, the purposeful parallel to the covert action oversight statutory framework that's designed to cover military cyber operations that if they were done as if they were done by the agency, if they were done as Title 50 covered actions, they'd be under the covered action system. But because they're done by the military, and this is a point of debate I'm going to talk about more in a moment, but the argument is they fall out of the definition of covered action because they qualify instead under the category known as traditional military activities, or simply TMA. And as such, they don't trigger the requirement of a presidential finding. They don't trigger the requirement of giving notice within a certain short period of time to the intelligence committees. That creates a gap because these are programs that still nonetheless involved unacknowledged activities outside the United States where there's an intended effect outside the United States. And in response to that gap, awareness of that gap, the House and Senate Armed Services Committees 
for many years have been slowly building up parallel replacement architectures where there's something very similar going on with a degree of written executive branch leadership accountability combined with the reporting requirement. Only the reporting requirement runs to the Armed Services Committee since it's military, not the Intel Committees. Um, Over the years, they started doing this first with uh, kill capture missions taking place outside of combat zones, if they were taking place outside of combat zones. Uh, And then it got extended uh, to sensitive or, or I forget if it's sensitive or special. In any event, military cyber operations that are not having an effect in a combat zone, but that are intended to have effects outside the United States nonetheless. And if the, if the, uh, suffice to say, if it's falling into the traditional military activities category, it's true that the covert action system framework won't apply, but now this replacement or alternative armed services committee framework applies. And instead of a presidential written finding, you have a secretary of defense written. Well, they don't call it a finding, but it's the same thing. And you have the reporting within 48 hours to Hask and Sask. So what's the big deal with the NDAA? Those provisions got moved and relabeled. Fine. Secondly, it turns out um, there's been an ongoing debate in the interagency process. Let's assume it's a situation where Cybercom is going to conduct a computer networked operation to have an effect in, say, some European country where there is a server that the Islamic State is using for communications or propaganda or what have you. So it's the effect needs to take place in a country that's outside the U.S., but it's not a combat zone. That's our scenario. Now, if the U.S. is implementing the operation in a way where the U.S. sponsoring role is not meant to be apparent or acknowledged, then you begin to go down that covert action categorization, but it won't count as covert action because it's military, traditional military activities. There's been interagency debate that we only get pieces and glimpses on the outside about this uh, that question not so much which of the oversight systems are you now under, but just is this proper for Cybercom to do at all? Is it a proper DOD mission? So it's sort of a turf war dispute. Um, the conference report on this new NDA provision makes clear that at least the uh, members of Congress involved were persuaded that this is a real problem, that DOD has been hamstrung in its ability to conduct these operations because of questions about whether you know, the newfangled world of computer network operations really counts as a, quote, traditional military activity. And they wanted to include statutory language that says, look, I don't really care what the debates have been. We hereby say it counts as traditional military activities. And so that's how it shall be going forward. That should put a spike in those debates. Interestingly, the conference report says, but the statute doesn't, but the conference report says there's also a just a more general problem in the interagency process in vetting these kinds of operations with too much friction of an unspecified kind. And there's a statement in the conference report urging the White House to alter and streamline these procedures. This connects up with public reporting that there's been an effort to revise the relevant uh, uh, presidential policy directive to give in some way or fashion, less interagency vetting to what would be cybercom activities of this kind. So you should see that all as of a piece with this larger effort by the Senate to smooth, not the Senate only, the Congress, to smooth the way for military computer network operations. And that leads us to our third and final thing you need to know. 
There is a mini quasi AUMF, Now I am trying to be provocative by calling it that, a mini quasi AUMF for military cyber operations in certain circumstances up to a certain point that is also part of this larger congressional effort to try to nudge the Trump administration to do more in response, especially, but not only, to Russian hostile cyber activities. So why do I say that? It's section 1642 of the NDAA. Um, Congress obviously can't make President Trump issue orders to Cybercom or anyone else to take more aggressive action in response to Russian and other malicious foreign cyber activities. Um, but can at least try to grease the rails a little bit by removing possible frictions, including concerns that maybe such actions aren't actually clearly enough authorized by Congress. Now, I want to say at the outset that everything that we're talking about here probably falls below the level that the executive branch under both parties in recent decades has has treated as the level at which you really have to have congressional authorization at all, whether you're talking Article II separation of powers type debates about what war means, or if you're talking about what hostilities means for the war powers resolution. In any event, um, Section 1642 uh, pre-authorizes, quote, proportional cyber operations when certain conditions are met as determined by a certain authority. The conditions are that there is, quote, an active, systematic, and ongoing campaign of attacks against the government or people of the United States in cyberspace, including attempting to influence American elections and democratic political processes. And then that must be connected to one of the following specific nations, Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran. Uh, the decision as to when that trigger has been met is not, strictly speaking, uh, the president. It's the National Command Authority. And then, uh, Naomi, as you know from that DOD stint, the National Command Authority is, is a term of art where you're referring jointly, and I think that's fascinating, jointly to the president and the Secretary of Defense. Uh, so the National Command Authority is the decision maker uh, for when the hostile foreign interference with, uh, you know, attack on the government of the people of the United States has been triggered. When that happens, then you can point to 1642 and say, I have clear congressional authorization and therefore in indeed encouragement, though not strictly speaking an obligation, uh, to carry out responsive proportional cyber activities. Uh, an interesting question for both of y'all, this idea that the decision makers, the National Command Authority, the NCA, is it really possible to read that as potentially envisioning a situation where the president wants to direct it, but SECDEF won't concur, and therefore, you, whatever else is true, you can't cite 1642 as the authority? It's hard to imagine that happening, I would say. I mean, the Secretary of Defense does serve at the pleasure of the president. Sure. So, well, so you can always get a new Secretary of Defense, but in the right. meantime, would this... I mean, what, what is the point of having the NCA be the decision maker instead of the traditional AUMF language of the president decides? It's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe just to sort of encourage cooperation and concurrence between the secretary of defense and the president. I mean, it can't constitutionally be the case that Congress could give the authoritative decision-making power to the secretary of defense. That would raise, I think, serious commander-in-chief clause problems. Indeed. 
There, there was an analogous situation, though, that, Bobby, you would certainly remember with the Guantanamo detainee releases, right, yeah. where the Secretary of Defense That's had right. to sign off yep. on those. And there was often tension between the president and the Secretary of Defense on that very act. But, so, where, but, where, the, but where the regime was set up so that the Secretary of Defense was basically doing the administrative legwork, and then there was sort of inertia problems created by that, that, you know, you had the sort of the superficial policy of the president to try to expedite releases, and then you had the sort of... Um, the, the 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 cog in the machine, right? The Secretary right. of Defense's certification, who by statute had been obliged to make certain findings, and Ash Carter took that obligation very seriously and was not <laughs> going to put his name down on something until he was pretty sure that he had met it. And it was he was being more cautious than the White House wanted. I think it's fair to say it. So I think it's in the public reporting. Um, it, it all highlights the various ways in which we complicate the vision of the unitary executive and in ways that really matter for our current political moment, where you think in a million different ways, I think a lot of people who normally aren't so concerned about intra-executive separation of powers, very happy to see different ways in which authorities are supposed to be exercised by a particular sub-presidential figure, who in theory, I mean, this gets back to Mueller, right? But in theory, there's usually some pathway where you can describe the president if they're really committed enough and willing to bear the cost enough, forcing the issue and, and keeping the unity of the executive branch intact. But there's a huge gulf between the theoretical ability of the president to do that and the practical ability to do it. And nothing illustrates it more than the latest run of tweets from the president demanding that Jeff Sessions you pull the trigger somehow in, in doing whatever it takes to stop the, the Russia investigation. It would be unethical for him to do that. So I just, it's crazy. But the president keeps that. tweeting about it. <laughs> exactly. He'd have to, I guess he'd recuse himself, he'd unrecuse himself or he'd find some pretext. I mean, we're, we're obviously beyond the realm of, of this is just people so doing things by the book. and tiresome <laughs> it and is. stupid. We have to act interested each week because we're not acting interested. Our listeners never will be. Listen, I'm not saying I'm uninterested. I'm just like, I mean, I woke up this morning to the president's tweet storm about, about the witch hunt. And it's just like, get some new material, dude. Why don't you block him? He's the president of the United States. He fires people on Twitter. Like he takes, you can't, you know, yeah. just as I subscribe to various, you know, listservs that I can't stand to keep tabs on what's going on with things I can't stand. So too, I keep tabs <laughs> on the official decrees coming from the Twitter account of, you know, that person who currently holds the, the presidency of the United States. Well, I hereby decree my discussion of the cyber provisions over. <laughs> Thanks. If anyone stayed with us through that whole deal, <laughs> thank you for bearing, uh, you know, that was basically a, a boring lecture from the front of the stage. Not storage. at all. I mean, to the contrary, we, um, one of the critiques, one, I think one of the most fair critiques of our national security law casebook is that we undercover cybersecurity. And, mm -hmm. and we're well aware of that. Part of the problem is that there, it's not at all obvious yeah. to us what materials to include. And so if nothing else, these provisions and, and Bobby, your analysis of them gives us something to include. There you go. There you go. And, and special shout out to Barb McQuaid uh, from the University of Michigan School of Law, who was the latest in a long run of commentators to point out that our, our casebook needs more cybersecurity. Uh -huh. But why jam it into your book when instead people can find my uh, mega syllabus document, which is like a book for my cybersecurity class. You should just have a thing, like a chapter. People See, have Bobby. to, chapter 14 just says, has like a, an, a you know, <laughs> a HTPS, yeah. go, go here to Chesney's syllabus. All right. Uh, anything else we want to say right now about the NDA? Do you want to touch on any of the other provisions? I, mean, I, I, I mentioned briefly the, the, the fact that the uh, medical transfer provision for Guantanamo detainees disappeared in conference um, that the, oh, yeah. the yeah. Senate bill had included a provision 
that has been fought for for years to at least modify the ban on transfers of Guantanamo detainees into the United States in cases of medical necessity, where there are treatment facilities available in the United States that are not available at Guantanamo. Once again, that provision disappeared at conference, presumably because the House conferees objected to oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I, we talked about this on an earlier episode when we first spotted that. There was a lot of language accompanying it saying, in effect, you know, no one who's transferred on this basis shall have, an, you know, in any of six different ways, an ability to stay in the United right. States once the treatment was done. That would have been a really important proof of concept uh, for possible transfer for prosecution. Alas, no. Yeah. Um, all right. So enough of that. Hey, Doe v. Mattis, what's happening? <sighs> so uh, there was a status report due to Judge Chutkin by Monday, that was July 30th, about the apparent efforts of the ACLU lawyers and the government to reach some kind of agreement as to the terms of John Doe's release from now almost 11 months of custody in Iraq as an enemy combatant. Um, the status report basically said, hey, we're still talking, can yeah. we have more time? And Judge Chutkin uh, at you know, further continued the abeyance order and yeah. and uh, so, uh, August thir- August thirteenth is the next status report. You know, we I mean, it's clear where this is going. This is go. You know, they're they're gonna they're gonna make a deal. This yeah. is all gonna go away. So wait, so why is it taking so long? And, and I'm gonna go somewhere with this. If if the deal is simply trying to figure out like where in Syria and with what kind of ID, because he didn't have ID, and there there's been a debate about like can they can he get a passport? Can he get some kind of travel documents? Uh, we know they're trying to give him a bunch of cash and, and a phone. I mean, I wonder. I wonder if now that they're talking about like a negotiated deal as opposed to a government-imposed, right. judicially non-blocked deal, if there's also some conversation about relinquishing his citizenship. That so I've been, as you know, I've been wondering about that the entire time, and I also wonder too. So, like, what's this, given the current status quo in Syria? Um, where is this guy gonna go once he's there? If if you're him, put ourselves in his shoes. Where do you want to go? Well, um, the government does not want to bring you to the United States, and you might want that. You might not, though. It's not like he had some life here to come back to. Um, he has a life in Saudi Arabia, or had a life in Saudi Arabia. Now he did not want to, and successfully resisted transfer to but Saudi that was custody. The litigation. But is it possible? And would this explain why it's taking a while? Is it possible they're trying to work out a deal where he would go back to Saudi Arabia and would be monitored, etc., but wouldn't be subjected to whatever sort of, you know, process they were originally and then perhaps envisioning? Perhaps part of what's taking so long is that the government is trying to get assurances from the Saudi government that get folded into the release agreement. Yeah, that the, the, the Doe and his lawyers will Listen, sign I, off I on. think all those are possibilities. Uh, the, the larger point to me is, as we've talked about multiple times before, we are increasingly heading to a resolution of this whole sordid affair with no merits determination. Yeah, no, there's not going to be. One. And we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of his detention. And you know, I I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but the idea that the government can hold a U.S. citizen in military detention for upwards of a year with no judicial decision one way or the other on whether it was ever legal for them to do so. It's kind of galling. So you've heard me say this before. I, I feel dirty about to say it. Like, we should just record our... our, so our move B. You make move A, I make we'll move B. because we don't know what Amy <laughs> thinks about all of this. Well, I do. I would love it if you'll weigh in on it. But just to state for the record what my objection to that characterization is, clearly the government to some extent is, of course, responsible for trying to assert military detention authority over a citizen in these circumstances and in various ways. But it's also the case that the ASLU has conspicuously not tried to get a ruling on the merits, and they have not pushed for the... And I've said so the timeline again, I'm, not, is, I'm not holding yeah. this against the... Listen, I'm not saying that, like, the core... The, I, I think I've been crystal clear that the that that the 
the the the target of my frustration is not the lawyers or the, is it's it's Judge Chuckin. Yeah. Right. That that listen, the ACLU has ethical obligations to their client to do what's in the best interest of their client. That's fine. Someone has to step back and say what's in the best interest of our legal system. Well, didn't she push back enough though that the government then turned around and basically said we're going to negotiate because we don't want a ruling on the merits. So. I, I, so that's you know, why the parties are negotiating. I mean, right? Bob, Bobby, in fairness, and I, we fought about this. I mean, I, 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 you know, Bobby is much more confident that the government would win on the merits than I think I am. Um, you know, I, given the rulings, I'm not sure that. I don't know, they but, would. but I guess all, all I'm saying is, like, to me, you know, I think a lot of what Judge Chuckin did in December and January and February makes sense to me. But there comes a point where there's nudging and then you actually have to decide something. And and it's become increasingly clear as we've had these transfer debates and as we've had this, you know, longer sort of kerfuffle about um, the circumstance of his release, that what's really going on here is that she just doesn't want to issue an opinion one way or the other. No, I think that's that's fair. Um, all right, well, Doe will be back. We, we are always guaranteed. <laughs> Sustaining member Doe. In, until Doe's release, we will always have at least that one more episode to mark the actual release and say what we can about it. Um, it's coming. So uh, in another ripe field, Trumplandia, there's a lot we can talk about. Should we start with this uh, business about a referral? Um, I thought that was an interesting report and for a number of reasons. And this is the report that came out yesterday on CNN and today and uh, some other outlets that Mueller had months ago referred some of the cases associated with the Manafort prosecution to the New York U.S. Attorney's Office. So it suggests that... Uh, the special counsel is actually moving some cases out of the special counsel team and into the U.S. attorney's offices where they will be subject to the normal approval processes in the Justice Department. And combined with the reporting that was really not very uh, uh, well covered a few weeks ago that uh, certain career prosecutors had been assigned to some of the cases um, that are ongoing, I think that the, it looks like the special counsel is institutionalizing some aspects of the investigation, suggesting to me at least that he is staying within his mandate and where things veer outside of the mandate, he is taking care to make sure that those go through the normal Justice Department process and it protects uh, his investigation against the attacks. So, so, so I was, I mean, we, we talked about this a little bit, I think, when one of those stories came out a couple of weeks ago. And I guess the question is, is it responsibly policing his own mandate or is it insulating these investigations from what President Trump keeps going on Twitter and demanding someone do for, you know, um, as, as Bobby likes to quote, won't someone rid me of this meddlesome priest? <laughs> um, right. I mean, so so I, it, it also has a bit of a feel to me of Mueller providing a mechanism whereby these cases are going to have a life and a salience, even if we have a repeat of a Saturday Night Massacre. Well, that's a good point. Is he doing this because they fear that there may be some abrupt change? I didn't read it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I read it, and this is going to make me your most boring guest ever, but I read we've it. We've only had three. <laughs> Worst case scenario, you're like the, I'm the third. third most exciting yeah, guest good. we've had. Okay. Uh, I think that they're doing their job. They are taking the cases that they feel are directly within their mandate, including the Manafort case, which is on trial now, of course, and uh, and going forward with those and then taking the cases that stray into different areas like the Cohen uh, search warrant, um, for example, and pushing those out into uh, the U.S. attorney's offices. Mm -hmm. And that's 
that's entirely probable. What, it's such a crazy position to take that, like, <laughs> Mueller is actually acting deeply, responsibly, and consistent well, with. you guys are here in Austin. I'm in Washington, where it is a little bit crazy because you have the people, you know, the Trump supporters who are saying it's a witch hunt and Mueller is going to indict everyone and go crazy, and that's terrible. And then you have the uh, the Trump opponents who take the other tack and say it's Mueller's going to indict everyone because there's so much criminality. And I think, actually, Mueller's going to do his job. Right. And it's going to the They're going to look at the evidence and bring charges where appropriate. I will say, I mean, I know, I know we could go down a rabbit hole trying to deconstruct the president's tweets, but I will just say <laughs> his this morning he added, a, I think, a, a claim I hadn't heard yet, which is that the whole investigation is a disgrace. And I, I don't know that he'd actually literally called it a disgrace before. I just want to say... I don't know how you look at the indictments that have been handed down thus far and what we've learned about Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 election as a disgrace. I I look at it as a deeply educational and useful public, um, you know, public contribution, public, uh, 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 what am I, uh, um, public service. most of the people who have been indicted are Russians. Yeah. You know, if they're studying the Russian <laughs> attempt to interfere with the I US guess, is that, is that the disgrace? <laughs> Go spot your plot holes somewhere else. Come on. This, there's far too much evidence-based uh, reasoning going on here. Sorry, so. folks. Well, speaking of things that aren't quite reasonable, uh, collusion is not a crime. Or if oh, it God. was, it's not, a, it, you know, there's no crime here. Can, can we talk about, can we talk Rudy's about Rudy? Micro- can we just take his microphone away? I just, I, he's not okay, doing is he crazy? any favors is he, to anybody. Is he crazy like a fox? Is there a method to the madness? No. Or is he just like a rogue? You talk about rogue clients. I mean, everybody who's had clients has had the hard to control clients. And you would think that'd be the dynamic here. But it really seems like in Trump's case, it's kind of a two-way street. He, he, in this case, seems to have an attorney who just is throwing bombs of his own but devising wait, multiple, left multiple and right. He has, he has yeah. an attorney who recorded potentially incriminating conversations with his clients, Michael Cohen. And now he has an attorney who keeps going on television and saying inconsistent things that seem to be not helping. We need a, a TV show, Better, Better Call Cohen. <laughs> Better Call Rudy. That could be the that could be a, a team up, Cohen and Giuliani. So listen, as someone L-L-T. who as someone who grew up in New York in the late '80s and '90s, like I've never been a fan of Rudy Giuliani, so this is not a new development for me. But I just like I I know that there are. Amy just mentioned the two camps, right? The the sort of everyone's going to be the marshal of the Supreme Court is coming for President Trump. It's going to happen tomorrow, <laughs> right? Um, and and it's just like, like you know, I, I look at the Giuliani thing, and I'm not I'm not reacting. It's like, oh my God, it's a smoking gun, right? I'm reacting to it like this is sad. Can someone just, well, just shoddiness, right? Can someone just take this guy off the stage? Yeah. Well, just for the record, the crime at issue is called conspiracy. It shows up in various places in the U.S. code. It involves meetings of the mind between two or more people intending to facilitate I mean, or in, t- intending to achieve a separate act that is a crime, like a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Right. Please hack hacking. this person. And right. I mean, the, so I. Okay. I, I'm, let's see something. Do you th- do you if that's all there was? No. It, no. 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 Are no, you, no, are you no, saying no, yeah? Because no, no, I think no. that's like people. No. 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 People no. Are making too much of I the not, listen, police I, hacker. I don't thing. have the marshal of the Supreme Court on speed dial, okay? Um, like, going for the crazy, you know, the oh, whole, yeah, yeah. right? No, but I, I mean, just the extent to which people who I used to think better of are on the internet, are on television, are in the public domain professing shock and outrage that our criminal justice system allows the government to obtain a warrant based on nothing more than hearsay and probable cause, that our criminal justice system 
punishes the act of conspiring to commit a crime at some point in the future. Aren't, like, you, aren't you excited to have all these people converting to the sort of the criminal defendants' rights mm-hmm. causes that I think are near and dear to your heart? All these new allies? Seems to depend on who the defendants yes, are, Yes, right? it does. Well, it the, but does. This, is, this is the problem. I mean, right, mm-hmm. that they're hijacking what is actually a very, like, you know, and so you get all this, like, you know, what, you're for the government? It's like, no, but, like, if you actually think there's a problem, tell me how to reform it, not tell me why this one particular case is an example of abuse. So pivoting away anyway, f- from from Rudy, collusion's not a crime. There was a uh, about thirty six hours of fear that that Trump might try to you know withdraw the United States from NATO, right? <laughs> and then and then consequently, there was a lot of very quick uh, reaction to figure out like, is there anything Congress can do about this? Uh, it. I don't think Trump's about to pull us out of NATO. I sure hope to God he's not. At least, at least, I mean, it would help if he would stop lying about NATO. Well, look, if there's a whole, once we go down the layers of the cake here, we find many I layers. Mean, Article 5 has been invoked once in the entire yeah. history of NATO. On behalf of us. On behalf of us after 9-11. So, yeah, but, the, but the question I want to raise is, is there anything Congress could do to actually tie any president's right. hands on a treaty withdrawal question? So Beck Ingber and I got into a, not a fight, but a, a, a principled debate about this on Twitter. Um, so there is an open question about whether in general the president has the unilateral power to terminate a treaty that the Senate has ratified, right, mm-hmm. that the U.S. is a party to, right. given that the Constitution contemplates a multi-branch role in, in adopting in in adopting the, the treaty. Right. Yes. Um, the, the famous case, of course, is Goldwater versus Carter, when President Carter in 1979 unilaterally purported to withdraw the U.S. from its security agreement with Taiwan. Um, and, you know, that case, of course, went out on non-justiciability grounds, where the Supreme Court basically said, we're not really going to touch this case largely because the lawsuit was brought by, I think, 26 members of Congress. It wasn't, and and the basic just sort of gist was Congress hadn't really acted the way Congress needed to act to create a justiciable dispute. I'm trying to remember, did they actually make that a standing determination or did they, because so that really no, sounds no, more in standing so they than did, just they, they dismissed, I mean, there was, it was, when it got to the Supreme Court, the, the procedural posture was super awkward. There's no opinion of the court. Yeah. There's just a judgment vacating the DC Circuit's merits decision and multiple opinions on different grounds. One, I think, standing one political question. So let, let me back up. Steve led a panel on this at the D.C. Circuit Historical Society. Uh-huh. Amy, year, Amy, was, so. Amy, Amy was nice <laughs> enough to come. It was um, excellent. Eh, it was That's okay. awesome. Um, the video's online. Um, and when there was a reenactment of the argument with um, Harold Hail Coe Penn. and Catherine Carroll, right. so it was very good. You know what? We should, uh, why don't we have the, uh, the Twitter feed send that out Indeed. if you get the link. So listen, I mean, what, I think what it boils down to is I th- the Senate, Congress obviously has a role in implementing treaties. Um, I think it is reasonable to argue that that role extends to interpreting ambiguous language in a treaty. And so where a provision is ambiguous as to the means by which one party can withdraw from the treaty, I think it is perfectly within Congress's power to pass a later-in-time statute, since I am of the view that treaties and statutes are of equal weight constitutionally. Not everyone is, but that's my view. Um, And that Congress is allowed in implementing a treaty to interpret ambiguous language in the treaty, including language to re- require Congress's consent to withdraw. Now, of course, any such statute would require either the president's signature or a veto-proof supermajority in both houses. So practically, it's not going to happen. Right. It's, 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 a, it's a moot point, I suppose. Can I just say, though, whether it, it would be legally binding or not, it would be a very good, strong signal for exactly. Congress to send, much like the resolution that they passed uh, 
regarding the Russia's request exactly. to yep. interview right. Matthew McFall and others. I think Congress does need to take action and show that there are certain principles that we all are going to agree on and stand up for. And NATO would certainly be Absolutely. For that. Maybe also a motion shouldn't be fired without good cause. Oh, wait. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so this actually gets at a role for Congress that used to be, I think, used more often. It was yeah. it was often used in the early republic. And one of the first things I ever wrote was about a purely hortatory thing Congress did to criticize George Washington in the middle of some debates about free speech. Washington had given, you know, no, no figure less than George Washington himself gave a speech criticizing uh, these political clubs that emerged and that basically questioning their assembly association and speech rights to a certain extent. And Congress um, put a marker down by passing a censure resolution. And, and I often think about the vast number of occasions our current commander-in-chief is generating that are censure-worthy, where we talk as if that's not an option for, for Congress to collectively simply to put the marker down that we take the institutional posture that that's wrong. You saw it very quickly on the Russia issue. I think that the NATO case would be another one where a very strong bipartisan joint resolution would be very worthy, whether framed as a censure or simply framed as a statement that this is the view of the, of the people's representatives. I'd like to see more of that. Of course, we don't exactly live in a, in a well-functioning political environment, but there ought to be some things where that can be done. Uh, uh, apparently, I mean, apparently the, the, the most aggressive action that a Republican senator has taken to thwart the current agenda is vacation. Well, I, there's some mystery about that, right? Whether Jeff Flake even, <laughs> you know, first of all, is he going to think he's coming back or is already back? Um, I, I, I will say this in, all just to world. put the marker down because this is another one of our current recurring points of disagreement. And we do agree <laughs> so much. I feel duty bound to point this out that there, there's a world of difference between uh, speaking up on particular issues that warrant opposition, even when it's the president from your own party, and simply opposing everything that president does. Because I guess the idea is he's so far gone that even the things that you really do want him to do, we're going to oppose those things so too. So just, just to crystallize our, our disagreement here. Um, the world of difference is on whether speaking up is the full extent of what a senator can do, right? That is to say... That's a characterization. You just said there's a world of difference between speaking up on things you care about and... You know, I mean, Listen, my point is if you care enough about something to speak out publicly and to express dismay and then to turn around and say, if only there was more I can do... When you are in a Senate that is 50 to 49 and you could do whatever the heck you wanted if this particular issue was important enough to me, to you, that's not saying I can't do anything. I'm saying it's not important enough to me are to you, do something. But you're sort of taking all the possible instances and treating them as all equally on the table for no, no, taking no, no. action. I, to the contrary. That's how it sounds to the to contrary. Me. What I'm saying is there's a disconnect between someone like Jeff Flake, and Flake's not the only one, um, saying I'm deeply, deeply troubled by this thing. And saying at the same time, if only there was more I could do about it. If he were sufficiently troubled by it, he has mechanisms for action. He just chooses not to utilize them. Bobby, perhaps for the entirely defensible reasons that those mechanisms are about other topics where he does not disagree with what's going so on, the, like judicial confirmation. The place where I think we agree is that, of course, there are is that things. everything sucks. <laughs> not everything. Um, I like the light traffic we get during these hot Austin days. Oh, we don't agree about that. We don't agree about that. All right, back to back to the point at hand, and then we'll move on to other things. Um, it is clearly the case that there's more any member can do 
than just say, oh, I protest, here's my tweet, I don't like this. There's, there's all sorts of stuff, many, many tools in the toolbox. Uh, what I don't agree with, and I, and I will not accuse you of taking this position, but I do think some people take the position that, you know, if you, if you feel like, if you feel unhappy or angry about something Trump has done on issue X, then therefore you need to hold up the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, or you need to hold up the nomination of some other judge, or you need to hold up and go on down the list. I don't think it's right that the decision that you want that judge confirmed or you want that policy enacted or you want the NDAA passed, that the failure to exercise your possible blocking power in any one instance shows that you're not taking seriously enough your objection to Trump on these other dimensions. I disagree. I, I think I, I, or at the, at the very least, it suggests that your that the gravity of your objection to Trump is perhaps not as serious as you are portraying it to be. I think that's way too. I think it, there's a huge difference between. Suggest, <laughs> Amy, we need a tiebreaker. <laughs> let, let me finish the thought. Between calling into question the the honesty, frankly, which is what that really does, right? The honesty of someone saying, like, I'm really upset with Trump. It, Trump, it's outrageous what he did with the Russians or fill in the blank. There's so many good examples of this. And saying, like, no, that's kind of BS. You're being political. Because if you really meant that, then you would oppose Kavanaugh. I don't think that's a fair trade off at all. I mean, because by that logic, What's they, the point of leverage? but because then we're back to my claim earlier, which I thought you were disowning, which is my claim that some people are saying you have to oppose everything if no, no, you no, mean no, no. To, if you mean wait, wait, to wait, be opposed I want, to Trump. I want to be clear, right? I'm not saying you have to be. You have to, no, no. Again, I'm talking. It is Jeff Flake's right to not oppose anything, right? It is also his right to go on Twitter and complain about President Trump. My point is, there is something deeply um, discordant about saying you're powerless. When you're not powerless, you're just choosing not to use the power available to you. And maybe you have good reasons for not using the power that's available to you. But the idea that the House is different because of the way the structure is. Yeah. But the, the, the Senate senators. today, any one Republican senator right now could do just about anything they wanted if they cared enough about that one thing to override lots of other issues. Like, for example, can they be reelected? Like, for example, can they get the rest of the Republican Party agenda through? My point is just that this is not a, the, this is a personal choice on the part of these Republican senators. It is not a structural constraint on their power. We're probably boring the listeners to death and going in circles, but just to, to wrap it up, are you saying that the measure of Flake's honesty on his opposition to yeah. Trump is whether he will do something to prevent Brad Kavanaugh from getting no, confirmed. I'm not saying his... Wait, wait, no. Come on. I'm well, not saying I, that's what, that's of, what it sounds like. No, I'm not saying it's a measure of his honesty. It's a measure of his seriousness. Like, I I have, I, I deeply believe that Jeff Flake is, de- is deeply opposed to President Trump. But... I don't. I don't take him. I don't take his opposition seriously until he shows me that he is so opposed to Trump that he's willing to give up something he cares about to actually manifest his opposition and use and use his real power that most Americans don't have to actually try to exact some concession from the president he opposes so much. That's not about honesty. It's about priorities. I, I just seeking clarification because it sounded it sounded different earlier. But we okay. are on the same page as far as it goes. I don't think he's lying. I think he's just. I think he just has different priorities than he's making it sound like he has. <laughs> it is so tempting to resume the conversation at that point because I think you just made the point. I was building my presumptions on, but I also think we're killing our listeners by going round and round about yeah. this. So, Amy, do you have anything you want to jump into? This <laughs> I feel, is politics. I feel, like, I, feel like yeah. I feel like it's major league, right? Well, Monty, anything to add? <laughs> no. 
Dynamite drop in Monty. The broadcast school has really paid off. There is something I want to bring Amy in on because uh, one of the things I was when I was asking you earlier about what sort of national security type activities are on your plate as a as a private sector lawyer now. Um, you mentioned something that you picked up a portfolio for the firm of, of sorts um, involving a, a certain beloved statutory framework known as FARA, right. and uh, probably not knowing at the time how busy that docket might become. Not at all. Our longtime uh, FARA advisor at the firm uh, has been phasing down uh, and is retiring this year, and he asked me a few years ago, would I be interested in taking over as the firm's FARA advisor? And did you know what FARA was? I did know what FARA was. I had been at Justice, and I had worked with the National Security Division, and so I did know what it was, and that was the reason, I think, why he asked me if I would be willing to do this. So uh, this is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, uh, which is administered by a unit in the National Security Division. And uh, our firm, Arnold & Porter, is registered for a small number of uh, foreign government clients. And uh, we represent many foreign governments on a whole range of mostly litigation matters, but other matters as well. So there are often questions raised about whether the activities that we are undertaking require registration, and we have to talk through those and then uh, register when necessary. um, And avoid work if we're not registered for it um, unless we're prepared to do that. So uh, it's a really interesting area, but I thought rather sleepy when I agreed to do this three years ago. And that was, of course, before um, the you know, Manafort case and the Michael Flynn case put this in the news. And we're now getting a lot more uh, U.S. firms, some consulting firms uh, and uh, mostly consulting firms asking us, you know, does this require registration? Does that require registration? Because people are paying attention to it in a way that they hadn't before. And then there was this whole business where a bunch of uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what these letters, where they were letters of an interpretation of FARA that right. um, went public. Uh, the, uh, the inspector general did a report a little yeah. while ago September about 2016. right about uh, enforcement of the statute generally making recommendations about how um, how it could be enforced more vigorously and the Department of Justice has slowly been implementing those recommendations and one was that there needed to be greater clarity about what required registration and what doesn't because one of the reasons why the Department of Justice uh, has said that it's difficult to enforce the statute is that it is a very vague uh, statute and it's hard to identify violations when the guidelines really aren't clear. So they have released about 50 advisory opinions uh, to provide greater clarity. And uh, I recently published a piece analyzing some of those decisions. And they're not uh, they're not the, the magic sort of explainer that you would like to see to really make clear where the lines are on some of these exemptions and so forth. But they do offer some guidance to uh, firms that are trying to decide, does this require registration or not? All right. So uh, look for that. Can people find that piece online? Yep. Okay, yep. is that on the Arnold and Porter website? It should be. I, I'm sure it is. I'm sure, I'm, sure they're, I'm sure they have a comms team that's quite good and is promoting it. Um, hey, pivoting over to something totally you know, different for us, but we've got this 3D printed gun stuff going on a- across the country, as it were. Uh, and it's got actually really strong Austin ties, it turns out, because the, the individual who uh, is the principal behind the company, Defense Distributed, Cody Wilson, uh, is here in Austin, and I guess the company's headquartered here in Austin. And the litigation that had been in place for a while is has been taking place here in Austin, I think, in front of our, our colleague uh, who teaches here when he's not busy being a federal judge, uh, Bob Pittman, who's wonderful, mm-hmm. former U.S. attorney for uh, the Western District here. Um, 
Well, what's going on here? Defense Distributed is in the business of trying to make available to the world at large for online download uh, CAD schematics, computer computer assisted, computer aided, assisted. Uh, computer assisted design. So CAD schematics through which uh, if you have the right kind of 3D printer, you could uh, print either parts for firearms or even in, in certain cases, oh, I'm sorry. whole firearms. Aided. Computer aided. Yeah, computer you're right. Aided. I was All wrong. Right. Again. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, so, so basically, the whole idea is, hey, you know, um, guns are so regulated. If you are in the community of people who want guns to be as freely available as possible, well, 3D printing has some uh, exciting things in store for you because once the schematics are available, anyone with the right, I don't know what, epoxies or resins, I have no idea what goes into a 3D printer. John Malkovich in, in The Line of Fire. Right. You can you can do one better than John Malkovich in, in that wonderful film, Indeed. In the Line of Fire. Really good film. I, is this the point where I get to point out that it's actually a violation of federal law to create a firearm without a serial number? Or do well, I do that Let's later? come to that. So let's talk about what happened. So several <laughs> years back, Defense Distributed posted online, and for a while these were freely available, and many people did download these schematics after after Cody Wilson had sort of figured out what the what the files you know contours should be in order to make an effective firearm of a certain type. Um, and then state quickly reached out. The State Department quickly reached out and says, "You need to take that down right now. You do not have a license, and you're effectively exporting because this could be downloaded anywhere in the world. You're exporting in violation of the Arms Export Control Act, and more specifically, you are doing something in violation of the International Traffic in Arms Regulations. ITAR. ITAR." regulations which um, controls and requires a license for the export of items that are on the U.S. munitions list or the USML. Can I, still, can I add one clarification? Yeah. In addition to ITAR, I'm sorry, I misspoke. The federal law is not about no serial number. It's about no metal, right? That the, the Undetectable Firearms Act. Right. So ghost guns are something that- John Malkovich. Yeah. Something that's <laughs> something that is not going to show up in a metal detector. Right. Um, which, as, as you know, I heard somebody on NPR talking about this this morning, and I heard this one bit about, like, hey, you can go to the hardware store and you can make these, but you're pointing out that there's a federal statute that says, well, you can, but it is a felony to do so. So you can't actually, it's, so, so to be clear, it's a felony unless you put a metal bullet into it. Right, oh, so, so this is where this whoa. is where it gets really that's a that's a heck of a workaround because you could travel through metal detectors with it, right? Because the bullet because the bullet makes it detectable. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I wouldn't right. give up your serial number point though. Yeah. Just as a former homicide prosecutor, I was a homicide prosecutor before I went into the national security prosecutions world. But we used to solve homicides in part by tracing guns by serial number sure. and by the fingerprint that, uh, you know, yeah. a gun uh, had on a bullet and being able to trace that and so forth. So is there it, a federal statute requiring, therefore, that there be? I don't think no, so. But it uh, some states require it. And I always thought that there should be not only a federal statute requiring the serial number, but I always thought there should be an, a fingerprint requirement that every gun should be fired, test fired so that that pattern that would oh, be traceable would yeah, be yeah. on file somewhere so that, you know, you could solve homicides Sensi better, sen but. Sensible gun reform. Sensible well, gun that, reform. right. <laughs> well, so so what so happened here files. was Defense Distributed was told to take the files down, and they did, and they started litigating. The case unfolded here. Uh, got as far as the Fifth Circuit. Basically, they tried to get injunctive relief preventing the government from imposing the export control license. Which they claim was a prior restraint on speech. Right. So the idea is, look, speech is code is speech. This is this is expression. This is share. It is sharing knowledge. That's true. 
Um, the question isn't, is there some colorable connection to, the, to free speech? The question is, does that prevail in the face of the offsetting concerns? The government came in under the Obama administration strongly and vigorously arguing the national security concerns and the foreign relations concerns, uh, the risks associated with allowing uh, the sort of the home creation of untraceable gun, or untraceable and non-metal detector triggering guns. Right. Uh, the district judge, and I think it was Pittman, I'm not 100% sure, uh, agreed, so he denied the injunction. That was taken up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit agreed that that was, or at least found that that was not a reversible error. Uh, but then the administration changed. And the Trump administration uh, reversed position on this. And so not that long ago, they announced a settlement with Defense Distributed that involved, among other things, paying his attorney's fees, but also uh, green lighting uh, plans to not to issue an exemption so not so much to issue the license, but to exempt it from the licensing process. Uh, effective today. Effective today. And so a group of attorney generals uh, stepped in with a collective. Uh, attorneys general. Attorney, did I say attorney generals? That's all right. Attorneys general. <laughs> this, is, this is part of my longer pet peeve about calling attorneys general general. Oh, I certainly would never do that. Um, no, unless they've been in the military. And even then, I wouldn't call them that while they're in their capacity as an attorney general. So a bunch of because eight, that would be illegal. Because it would make Steve, it make you so unhappy. I might do it. Um, <laughs> AGs from various states collaborated in a suit, or they colluded on a suit in the state of Washington. And the trial judge has issued a nationwide TRO uh, just yesterday. And I'm going to read the the heart of the analysis on the likelihood of success um, for the AGs trying to oppose the down the the action by defense distributed to make these files available. Uh, quote, the federal government represents that its settlement was the result of a multi-year review process, which was completed in May 2018, resulted in a determination that the type of firearms and related technical data at issue here would not provide a military advantage to adversaries and therefore no longer warrants export control under the AECA should be removed from the U.S. munitions list. In such circumstances, the governing statute, 22 U.S. Code, 2778 sub F sub 1. 2278. No, nah, well, he, he wrote 2778. Oh. Oh. Well, some, I, Possible I typo? Someone's wrong. Ooh, okay. The, the so 20, from is 2278. So note to the clerks. Yeah, seriously. Uh, re- that statute requires that the results of such reviews be reported to Congress and precludes removal of any item from the U.S. munitions list until 30 days after notice to Congress is given. When the president delegated his authority under the AECA to the Secretary of State, he also imposed a requirement that any changes in designations of defense articles and defense services subject to export control had to have the concurrence of the Secretary of Defense. There's no indication that the federal government followed the prescribed procedures. I'm wrong again. It is 2778. It is 2778. Yeah, I Marty. All right. Marty's wrong. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a rare thing, so we'll note it. Okay, so so there you have it. And, of course, that level of sort of Administrative Procedure Act-style nuance yes. about did you give the notice, did you have the right sign-offs, notice the connection there to the the, the multi-figure sign-off. Um, that's a little more legally nuancy, but that's how judges make real decisions. They don't just go for what are the politics of this. So um, that if that's an accurate description of the statute, and I have no reason to doubt that it is, and if it's true that, A, the government actually has not taken those steps, or, B, 
failed to have the litigation wherewithal to point out that they did, then of course it's going to come out this way. And I think the only interesting question is is whether it'll turn out there's any space to argue that the uh, the State Department's process actually hadn't put this scenario into the U.S. munitions well, also, list already. Well, there's also an argument about whether the whether the CAD designs are items for purposes of the statutory text. I think that's the question that's right. being litigated. Well, so but the way it's being described here, I guess, I guess you could argue that well, all those procedural changes drop out right. if it was never properly done to, in that, the that's first the place. Okay. So, so, so two points. One, there's a lot of hysteria out there about yes, this case. People going bonkers. And about this nationwide injunction on free speech. Let's be clear, right? The TRO is only directed to the State Department and only prevents them from removing these CAD designs, right, from the list of exempted items. True, but it, but if but if you don't have that step, then Defense Distributed is down, is making those things available right now. No, I, mean, I understand. The but, one inevitably leads to the but other. It, in the notion that every the the way it's been portrayed in certain quarters yeah. is that all kinds of speech by all kinds of speakers is being suppressed by this horrible prior restraint. The other thing is a prior restraint usually means you're restraining something that was previously not restrained. When the whole point is this is a policy shift, right, to allow into the public domain things that were not previously allowed in the public domain. So Judge Lasnik and his TRO said, listen, the equities here are such that, you know, this is a bell that can't be unrung, right? I'm going to, maybe this all, maybe this stuff is going to come out, but at least until recently, it hasn't been out. Right. Although, although factually, I think it was out before. For a while. Yeah. So right. if it's really a bell that hasn't been listen, unrung, I, then we're already off to the races. I, I, I completely agree with that. My point is that this is, I think this is a hyper-specific case about the State Department and not some broad yeah. national oh. referendum on the oh, First Amendment that, that has I, been portrayed as in course, some quarters. Of course, but, um, but then, and then one more thing, if I may. Yeah. The other thing that I find strange about this, the conservative groups were very, very busy during the Obama administration criticizing what they called the sue and be sue, the, the sue and settle approach to litigation, where different administrative agencies would, after being sued by private interest groups, public interest groups settle the case and use the settlement as a means of shifting policy, um, right? That the idea mm-hmm. was that they were in, either they were- they Like were, it was collusion. Collusion or collusion <laughs> light, right? Although apparently collusion, so now collusion is bad. Um, the, this is exactly what happened here, right? The State Department changed policies and then settled this case in order to justify a shift in policy that they agreed with. Uh, defense distributed sued them. No, no, I, so that was true during the Obama administration. You had all these like environmental groups suing the EPA. Oh, I see. In, in, so and the EPA then, would settle. And but, then the conservatives would say, well, wait a second. You're making policy through these settlements. And apparently yeah. that was bad during the Obama administration, but it's okay now. So just to disaggregate the two things, because I think collusive, collusive litigation yes, is, a is, is a separate issue and problematic, and that's not... I don't think it's what you have here because it didn't start no, 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 that no. way. But, 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 but I'm think, not clear the collusive litigation was what was happening during the Obama administration either. It was, right. it was the allegation. Oh, if you're just pointing out the hypocrisy, sure. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm always down with pointing out well, hypocrisy. I mean, it's, just, it's funny how all these people who were so anti, you know, government settlements of suits as a way of making policy when it was a government they disagreed with are all of a sudden quiet. I think it's unavoidable, right? I mean, like, settlements... So don't be hypocrites. So right. just accept that, like, accept yeah. that, you know, if you're going to be all for elections having consequences, one of those consequences is that the executive branch gets to make policies you disagree I'm with. I'm not going to try to speak out for people that take positions for political reasons that are not the positions they're, you know, willing to take when the politics shifts. So I think we're pretty much in agreement on that. Any projections on what's actually going to happen, you know, five years from now, are people going to be able to download and 3D print yes. with all sorts of things, whatever they want? Yes. Is this all just sort of, you know, are we, is King Canute telling the tide not to roll in? Yes. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, 3D printers, I think, I mean, I, listen, 3D printers are going to have a lot of implications for, you know, gun control laws and for lots of things far beyond gun control yeah. laws. I think, you know, what this reveals, and Amy, I think, touched on this already, is just how spare federal regulation already is on this subject. I mean, that, that the relevant law is only about whether the firearm is undetectable to mm -hmm. a metal detector um, is maybe not where we should necessarily be focusing on, on you know, Listen, I'm not trying to, to relitigate the Second Amendment here. People are going to have different views about what arms yeah. we do do not have a right to keep and bear, certainly in our homes. My point is that here's a context where do we really want to create a situation where there are, where there's the possibility to create you know, unlimited, untraceable, unregulatable firearms? But you're I, saying that that's what's going to happen no matter what. As a practical matter, unless unless the unless Congress tries to step in and say there are certain things that you can't print on a three D printer without some kind of government license, yeah, that's gonna be tough. Um, you know, we can constitutionally we, or politically, politically, yeah. No, no, actually neither. I'm not, I'm not trying to characterize either one of those issues. I think it's tough as a practical matter because as the technology to make these things look. If but if are you saying then there's no right to bear plastic arms? <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm not making any legal or, or political judgments. I'm saying that if if the pathway for um, fabrication is such that pretty soon, 10 years from now, we basically all have replicators in our home, then unless there's a pretty intrusive degree of monitoring as to what people do in the privacy of their own homes with that, the data, the information yep. that's needed to do it, it'll be out there and people will, in fact, be doing this. And what we'll have is control of possession and distribution and that sort of thing. But, you, but you're probably not going to be able to prevent the information in the terms of the know-how, right. probably not going to be able to keep that from disseminating. Now, there's a parallel to this. It's really important for national security that's not about the Second Amendment. It's about synthetic biology. right? So this is all very similar to the debate about should it be legal for people to publish maybe academic or other work describing you know, what to do with this genetic manipulation right. technology to recreate smallpox, to I mean, recreate we're back to the progressive, right? I mean, the progressive, this is the famous case from 1979 where this magazine wanted, did in fact, right, publish how to build an H-bomb. And, and the question is whether the government should be allowed to enjoin that. And I think we're conflating, right, not you, but I think the public discussions of this topic are conflating the very important question of whether there is speech that is so inherently dangerous that the government should be allowed to regulate it, for example, instructions on building an atomic bomb, versus the specific question that arises from firearms and from the overlapping but not necessarily comprehensive regulatory framework for undetectable and or unlicensed firearms. When our legal system allows for the suppression of all sorts of speech to try to keep information in the hands of those who are authorized to have it. Yes. We have that national security yes. setting. We've got it in the intellectual the property Act. setting. So it's it's, it's a version. The Invention Secrecy Act of 1951. Uh, it's one of my favorites. You know, you can you can cause some mayhem with that one. All right, so so watch this space, I think, for dec 10 years from now in episode 800-whatever of the National Security Law <laughs> Podcast. Ten, uh, we're, we're only, it's it's going to take 10 years to get to 800 and something? It may be. The way, the way things sometimes go, especially in the last you know, years of either the first Trump term or, you know, if there's a second, we'll probably be at like 10,000 because we'll be just broadcasting by the hour. We might just be on live stream <laughs> everywhere we go. Out, at, we're, 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 the, this week on the National Security Law Podcast, the D.C. Circus decision in Al Nashiri 47. <laughs> and also an update on Dovey Mattis. <laughs> All right, I say Some we, I say we punt on. on Space Force until next time. Space Force! Because we we've probably been going on way too long already. We've got to talk about frivolous things. Amy, what have we missed? We've covered it. Let's move on to where am I going to dinner. All right. Okay, <laughs> so let's talk about Austin food mm. options. Where, uh, okay, you guys had barbecue for lunch. We did. Where'd you go? Black's. 
Okay. Yeah, okay. The location down yeah, by the Long River. Center, okay. which is better than yeah. the one right here by campus. So, so this is also relevant. I mean, I, I, I tend to focus on, on dinner recommendations also based on where people live and so what they have access to normally. So, for example, in D.C., you have access to various restaurants that, that you know, might affect our analysis here. Yeah. Right. So I was thinking we're in Austin. We should do Tex-Mex. Tex we did barbecue for lunch. We should do Tex-Mex. Exactly. What, what, about, what about Texas-infused Japanese food? I would take a recommendation, but we have we have sushi all the time in DC. No, no, so no, no. This, this is not is sushi. This is okay. not sushi. This is okay. this is izakaya. This is this is kushiyaki, oh, yakitori, ramen. So, so I am very high right now on kamori tatsuya, which I think is actually one of the more uniquely Austin culinary experiences because it's a it's a Japanese um, izakaya with a very Austin Texy twist. Sounds All great. Right. So okay. that's one, one Candidate one. Uh, in the same vein, what about Loro? So you had barbecue yep. for lunch. Yep. Loro is Franklin Barbecue, which is like the world's oh, right. greatest barbecue. I read about same it. guys, but this is a Asian-infused approach to yes. barbecue. So you could have a double barbecue day, yeah. which is always welcome. Sounds a little heavy. Um, yeah, it, it is that. So the the classic Mexican restaurant in Austin is Fonda San Miguel, right. um, which is very old school. And I would describe that as interior Mexico, not Tex-Mex. No, no, that's I said yeah. Mexican, yeah. right? Mexican. Um, for really good te- so what is your favorite Tex-Mex? In so Austin I have a couple days. of things I'd recommend if you want a straight up, you know, enchiladas, fajitas kind of classic in Texas experience. Um, I think a lot of people say Matt's El Rancho on mm-hmm. South Lamar. Mm-hmm. It's it's the big restaurant, just million tables. You know, there's a big birthday party over here, and the mm-hmm. people taking their grandparents out and kids over there. It's it's I think really good, and there's a lot of dishes there that I think really stand out. Like the uh, the brisket tacos are fantastic with tomatillo sauce. Um, Nearby, if you guys just don't even go that far, El Chile on Manor, which is just mm-hmm. east of campus, is is a small but delicious place. Um, can I can I go a yeah. little bit off the off the beaten path? So so this is a more specific genre, but I, I think the the taco dinner approach is actually underrated. Like I yeah. think you can we do tacos for lunch in a heartbeat, but you're saying go to like a and breakfast for... here. You do tacos, but but right? breakfast for tacos sure. and <laughs> breakfast tacos and lunch dinner tacos are not the same thing. And right. so, so I also, I mean, I think you, you, you also couldn't go wrong with a, a, an authentic torchies or taco deli dinner yeah. that really sort of gets you the full taco experience. That's true. Are you going to be here tomorrow then, squeezing a lunch? We'll be here for lunch tomorrow, probably. Yeah, we do, could do that. You know, torchies for lunch or something well, like that. Well, fine. Or, or taco deli. Um, also, so, so a little bit less Tex-Mexy, but sort of also uniquely Austin. Um, I'm a big fan. Actually, still in the Tex-Mex crowd, uh, Griselda's. Um, yeah, on the good. east side is yeah. actually a new funky text with my favorite uh, uh, drink cocktail I've ever had. What's in which is? Uh oh, what was it's it called like? The hot stepper. It has like habanero and speaking of nineties music, Kamosi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, that's a good. Um, well, what's the place downtown that that uh, Swift's Attic um, on Congress Avenue downtown is actually one of Karen's favorite places. It has a lot of Tex-Mex theme dishes, but also sort of a it's a lots of small plates, so you get lots of different interesting culinary options. All right. If you want to break out of the Tex-Mex mold and just be in a more just sort of Texasy place, uh, Jacoby's mm-hmm. on Cesar mm-hmm. Chavez is a really cool place where you can sit outside with you know there's like a fan and a mister, but um, I, it's hard to describe. It's you know there's there's they they have their own um, butcher shop next door and produce their own meat, I think, um, and they've got. A sort of a meat-oriented menu, but it, it's very Texasy and really good. Great atmosphere. Hmm. This is probably enough. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Go to all of them and work back. And when you're done, I'm super hungry right now. When you're all done, get some ice cream at Amy's. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, nice. Or or lick. 
I mean, Amy's is the classic Austin. Lick is like, Lick is like artisanal, like, you know, elderflower mint pistachio in, in less, gelato. Unless, like me, you only and ever just get the Texas sheet cake ice cream. And that's, that's just Although, goodness. okay, so one other suggestion, though, if I may. Um, if you're really adventurous, there's a brand new place in Seaholm, which is the converted power plant district downtown, called the Baked Bear, which is ice cream sandwiches. Um, oh, yeah, it's the, homemade the, cookies with homemade ice cream on top of the hot homemade cookie. Now, that's actually a Colorado-based deal. You can go local and get the same thing from Mujo's. Well, okay, but like, you yeah. know, I'm just... But it's a good location. I was right. going to say, like, Mujo's is on the drag. True. Big Bear Hard is downtown. Day. True. If there's an Amy's, though, we've got to go there. That is that's, the classic that's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's right? true, actually. How appropriate. Maybe you got, like, a T-shirt. And, oh, look. and they uh, they sometimes will do some crazy like so in the movie cocktail the iconic flipping of the <laughs> of the, the the bartenders you know tools of trade they do that at Amy's sometimes the well trained right. uh, throw servers. their scoopers and all exactly oh we've, we've probably like exceeded all records <sighs> for long podcasts so we're not going to talk about nineties music huh well we can I mean I how long have we been going so far? one hour seventeen minutes and forty eight seconds all right real quick round the <laughs> horn best worst guilty pleasures from the nineties do you guys know Fugazi. Do we? Yeah. All right. They were in my high school and some friends of mine from D.C. Are, so if you know your D.C. Ska? based punk bands, they're no, punk. Wait, you went to high school in D.C.? Punk. Punk. Okay, I just did. Punk. Where? I did. Georgetown Day School. Uh, and GDS. They were, from, they were from GDS and Wilson. And so my, my cousins went to Wilson. I am a I am a proud graduate of Montgomery Blair High School. Excellent. Da, 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 da. Great, um, great math program. Great math program. Any math famous, famous punk bands come out of your high school? No, but Ben Stein, Goldie Hawn, Connie Chung, and mm. Dominique Dawes. That'd be an awesome band. <laughs> <laughs> Our Amy favorite Fugazi song? Uh, Repeater. Repeater. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If we uh, if we were willing to the waiting room. I'm sorry. The waiting room is also excellent. Anyway, if, if we were willing to just like you know play the songs that we have we're in not. mind, um, I'll say you know uh, uh, as everyone knows, I have terrible you know weird taste in music. But my favorite group uh, is coming to Austin in October, the Nitto Girls. Oh, October I know, 4th. It. I know. It. Now so, you've seen it. We talked about this early on the podcast. You've seen dozens, them like it does yeah. Sometimes. You're a sensitive guy, Steve. That's what they tell me. <laughs> Somebody's got to be. The Cowboy Junkies have a new album. I'm a big Cowboy Junkies fan. Oh, I used to like them. I'm not sure. I even really knew they were still touring. They're still around. Um, that's pretty cool. And apparently they're turning Hamilton into a movie. That oh, is appealing. Oh, really? Um, favorite Cowboy Junkie song? Oh, wow. Um, mm, mm, there's so many. Their rendition of Sweet Jane is really yeah, I was about great. to say that that, that is hard to yeah. beat. Uh, Cheap is How I Feel. Is, oh, that's a great song. Um, I really like it. It's it's a great tune. Tuesday morning. To... There are a bunch of them. Yeah. All right. We we have our outro music, except we're not willing to play it on. We just need to start doing that. We don't we don't make any money, so judgment proof, right? Well, we don't make any money doing this. Where's our swag, by the way, swag man? Hey, I would so, like some swag. I okay. To appear on swag. Your by the way, I got a present from one of our listeners. You, what? I okay. Know. Okay, listener who just gives Steve's presents. Come on. Well, you know. Oh well. One of us is clearly a more dedicated Mets fan than the other. That is true. If it's Mets related, you it have is. definitely earned it. Um, so we, I talked to the, the team earlier about where we are in the swag hunt. So the, you have a team. I like that. Well, it's the Strauss Center team. I this podcast is brought to you by the Strauss Center. So Ashley has been working hard on digging up the options. I I approved the T-shirt today. <laughs> it's it is a cup. wait. I didn't. You'll you'll love it. Okay, it's a high it's a high quality T shirt because you know like many people you get it some swag and it's like well I can wear this once and then I wash it and it's going to be worthless. It's a good quality T shirt. We're working Drive on. It. 
Uh, no, I don't, it's not a performance That's type a, shirt. Just, it's a comfort color shirt, actually. Uh, so it's going to have sort of a good thickness to it and have that soft look that comfort color has. They have a color that it is going to be a sort of a burnt orangey looking uh, color that they've got. Uh, I think we'll have the NSL podcast logo on the back. But here's the kicker. Um, we've got a company we're working with that will, um, will, will funnel a certain percentage of the cost above their production cost to a charity. Okay. And they've got a list, and I'm just waiting for them to send us the list so we can pick one that we think will have broad appeal. This is what I get for missing staff meetings. Exactly. I, like, You've never been to our things. staff meeting. <laughs> That's not true. You came to one. I came to one when I was like not even employed by the University of Texas. <laughs> You're like, yet. I'm never going back to that well, again. Well, you know, I learned that that was your idea of recruiting. That's why we don't let you it do worked. that anymore. Here you are. All right. Well, so special shout out to anybody who stayed with us this long on our longest episode ever. But it was so worth it because we had awesome company. Amy, it was really cool having you on the program. Thanks we even, for being we, here. We, even almost let you, we almost let you talk. <laughs> A few times. Great to be here. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. We got to work on our guests, on our guest, uh, our guest dynamics. Guest dynamics, like letting them actually get a word in edgewise yeah. when we ramble. Seriously. We, should, we shouldn't like politically fight as much because we don't know anything about politics anyway. <laughs> True. Um, all right. On that note, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vlad. Are you on Twitter? I am not Amy on is Twitter. not on Twitter. Amy is not, not on. You're I'm not even a at Arnold and Porter. I'm at, <laughs> You're not even a lurker? No. Wow. Good for you. you versus, Justice Kagan has one up on you then. Is she on Twitter? Apparently, really. But but is this like a like when Kami was server. Reinhold Neighbor or whatever? So apparently there was so so the the word on the street is that there actually was someone who had basically figured out um, mm-hmm. which account was hers and mm-hmm. it was politely communicated to her and various things were changed so that it's no longer possible to figure out which account is yeah. hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't. This is why we can't have nice things, y'all. Well, there are <laughs> lots of reasons why we can't have nice things. <laughs> on that note, stay safe out there. Adios. Bye bye.